We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Bodrix. Joining me today is David Hay, author of The Bubble 3.0, co-founder and co-CIO of Evergreen GovCal. How are you today, David? Great, Tom. Better now that I'm with you. <laughs> well, that's that's not saying much. I, I'm just going <laughs> to grill you for an <laughs> hour here. Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, of course, we're speaking here on Tuesday, March 7th. And as, as you and I were kind of chatting about before we hit record here today, a little bit of a rough day in the markets, rough day obviously for gold as well, because Powell was out giving testimony that rates are going to be higher for longer. So, you know, maybe we can kind of start there and and get your thoughts towards why Powell is adopting that posture or continuing with that posture. And if anything about that surprised you. No, not really. I mean, I think he's been pretty clear that he does want to keep rates up here. He wants to see inflation start to really crack. And, you know, he's got a problem because he started from so far behind. So even though he's raised interest rates at about the fastest clip that we've seen since the early 1980s, he still doesn't have uh, interest rates, the Fed funds rate, up to the CPA, CPI. And I know the Fed looks at PCE, and even there he's a little bit below the, the PC's been coming down, but it's kind of stop coming down. It's been a you know a bit stickier than I think he would like to see. So he's in a he's in a bit of a jam. But the other thing too is that when financial conditions loosened up so much because of the market rally here in January in bonds and stocks, it was really working against him trying to cool things down. So that I think that frankly complicated his job. And so I, I do believe he's in a position where he would like to see the stock market if, if not go down, I actually think he does want to see it go down, but certainly cool off. Mm-hmm. And I think he'd actually like to see credit spreads. You know, the difference between what corporate bonds pay and the government bonds pay, which I think very few people pay attention to, and yet it's an incredibly important factor. And those spreads narrowed drastically from last fall until, uh, you know, January. Now they've started to widen out again. And of course, the market's been in a bit of a correction mode. But, you know, I think this whole debate about interest rates is, is, is tough because I heard John Taylor on TV the other day, and he's basically saying his rule is much higher, more like 8 9%. And yet you think about if the Fed funds rate was at 8 or 9%, what would the economy do? And it's it's really a conundrum because when Paul Volcker crushed inflation in the early 1980s, the debt-to-GDP, the government debt-to-GDP was very low. The overall debt-to-GDP was very low. It was like 25%. We're about almost 100% higher than that on a, on a government basis. So as he's ratcheting these interest rates up drastically, he's also driving up the deficit. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, too, as you think about it, what's happening is these higher rates are actually creating additional income for savers. So it's you're actually creating a stimulus there. So it's a transfer from the government, which is having to pay these higher rates to savers, putting more money in their pocket. That kind of works again. So it's a he's in a very tough situation. And I think we have to be a little bit empathetic. But on the other hand, he did create this by getting so far behind the inflation curve, mm-hmm. you know, particularly back in 2001 and for the first part of 2022. So it's tough. But I think to really say how higher interest rates, you have to have some kind of normalized inflation calculation. You know, is, is inflation normalized 2% or 24 kind of the market's projections? 
or is it more like going to be three to four? And personally, I think it's going to be more like three to four, you know, at low points. And then at times it's going to accelerate and, you know, go five, six, seven percent. But, and, you know, I'll stop there. I don't want to give you too much information all at once. No, not a problem. One of those pieces that you mentioned is the difference between corporate and government bonds. So if you could, David, explain that to us a little bit more. So it's if you looked at the overall corporate credit spreads during the, the fall when things were, you know, that's when the market was really on its keister and uh, the interest rates had not, not only been going up, but the spreads are widened. So they got to about 600 basis points or six full percentage points above treasuries. Then they came down to kind of the low fours, which is more of a normalish reading. But you know, oftentimes when you get into a recession, because when you get into a recession, then fears of defaults, corporate defaults start to rise, which then causes credit spreads to elevate, that puts pressure on stocks, that puts pressure on the cost of capital for companies, and it, it creates a pretty nasty chain reaction. And I think to really illustrate the power of credit spreads is to think back to the spring of 2020, when the market was in free fall, the S&P was down about 38% at one point. And, you know, that was when COVID, the COVID news was just getting worse and worse and worse. Mm-hmm. And yet, in March, I think it was March 23rd of 2020, the Fed said that they were going to start buying corporate bonds using their magical money machine. And that caused credit spreads, which had been screaming up. Again, that's a very bad thing when credit spreads widen out drastically, and they were, it's caused them to crash back down again. And that turned what had been you know, a brutal bear market into this bull market that ran until, you know, I guess, the early part of last year. And so that just really speaks to how powerful credit spreads are, because as you know, the pandemic news just got worse and worse for, for many months. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until November that the vaccine, November 2020, that you know, the news of a Pfizer vaccine, Moderna vaccine started to percolate out. So spreads are very important. And my concern is they got too tight here recently. They're going to widen out. Uh, you know, I think it's going to tie into a second down leg for stocks, but I don't want to get too far ahead of the, the discussion. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe we can we can revisit the the idea of of the path forward for inflation as well. Obviously, that is what the Fed is so squarely focused on. But the the last time you and I spoke, we talked about the really the input side of that type of inflation. So, how do you see inflation coming down, if at all? Is, is that going to be somewhat due to the base effects? Is it going to be because we're actually, you know, combating the causes of this inflation? Or is it more than likely going to be this persistent issue that we're facing right now? Well, yes, I think it is. It's two things. It's There's cyclical inflation and then there's long-term inflation. And I think, I think the cyclical trend in inflation is down right now for a while. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that's energy related. If you think back to a year ago, we were getting some of these huge inflation prints from energy because of the invasion of Ukraine. And you know, that's when oil got up to $120 a barrel. And not too long after that, natural gas got up to about $10 per million British thermal units. That was actually last summer. So we're going to be going through a period here where the energy comparisons look pretty good. So that's going to be giving the Fed some some cover. And, and just in general, goods inflation has been decelerating. And in some cases, pretty dramatically. Look what's happened to the price of lumber, for example. So that's that's helping them. But on the other hand, 
And I think, again, this relates to how long they waited before they really went into action trying to withdraw liquidity. I mean, realize they were a year ago, the Fed was still printing money. They were still doing QE, quantitative easing, a year ago today, even though at that point inflation had been running hot for well over a year. So they really got themselves behind the curve. And the uh, as a consequence, you're getting a fair amount of services inflation. You know, wage inflation tends to be harder to bring down. It's hard to cut people's uh, salaries. And right now, they're, they're getting increases. Now you can say, well, the increases are really not quite at the inflation rate. So in real terms, people are still losing purchasing power. And I think that's a valid point. But uh, inflation is, I think, I think the easy part is getting inflation down to, say, 4%. I think getting it below 4% is going to be the really tricky part. Actually, today... Some of the, uh, I forget which congressman or woman it was, it was a grilling uh, Powell on, you know, what kind of employment. Uh, Elizabeth Warren was, was, of course, you know, coming after her pretty hard. But how many people do you have to put out of work to get your inflation target? And she did make the point, and it's, it's a valid one, is that you know, if you look at the last 12 times, unemployment went up 1%. And that's probably not enough, frankly, to get them down to the 2% inflation target they want. But every time it's gone up by at least 1% in the last 12 instances, you know, going back many decades, you've had a recession. Mm-hmm. And he reluctantly admitted that today. And I think that's, again, part of their, their, their challenge. I've seen numbers you have to get the inflation rate to 7 plus percent to get down to 2% PCE, you know, their preferred inflation measure. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's right, but it, it probably is true that you're going to have to create a, quite a bit of joblessness to really get to that number. So I think they're probably not going to get to that number. I think they're going to play with it. You know, they've, they've just adjusted here recently, which I don't think is really having much of an effect, you know, where they're they're going to go with, uh, you know, a shorter time frame to look at, at the inflation rate. But that's going to pick up uh, what's happening with OER, which is going up. So that's the owner's equivalent rent. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things that, frankly, inflation, if we look back at 2021, inflation would have been much hotter if housing prices were factored in the way we think about them. But again, they use this owner's equivalent rent, kind of like what your house would rent for, and it doesn't really relate to what's happened to the house price. And But now that's, that's so that, that made things look better than they were back in 2021 from an inflation standpoint, but now it's making things look worse from an inflation standpoint. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of puts and takes, a lot of cross currents here. You know, that's how some are helping, some are hurting. But bottom line, I think it's going to be really challenging for them to get down to two percent. Now, will they call it good at three or four and say we did our best? And they could, but I don't think that's great news. Uh, you know, I don't think it's great news, especially for the bond market, if that happens. Mm-hmm. So it's. I mean, we got to realize we're in uncharted, uncharted waters here, and I think that's why it's made predicting a recession challenging. You know, that's, that's certainly when we talked last. I thought we would probably get into a recession sometime second half of next year. But you might remember, a lot of people believe we were in a recession in the first half of last year because we actually had two negative GDP prints in a row. And I said, I don't think so. It just doesn't feel that way. But ironically, as the real economy got softer, the official numbers got stronger, which is kind of a weird deal. Mm-hmm. But a lot of this stuff, as you know, you know, the, the monetary policy works with long and variable lags. And it was really just about a year ago, the Fed started to tighten. And if you look historically, it's in the second year after tightening that bad stuff really starts to happen to the economy and the financial markets. It was kind of unusual that the stock and bond markets got under pressure as early as they did. Mm-hmm. And you know, I can't really give you a great reason for that. You know, Maybe it was that there was just way too much complacency. 
Uh, because usually when the Fed starts tightening, the market keeps going up. And that clearly didn't happen this time. So that's another, this time it was different type of event. Maybe that's an acknowledgement from the market that they realize how overvalued things could be. Yes, I think that's a very good point. I mean, you had at the beginning of 2022, you had the 10-year treasury at only 1.5%. And I don't know exactly, but inflation was somewhere 7 or 8. I mean, you had an incredibly negative real interest rate at that point. Mm-hmm. And you had one of the most, I would argue, in many ways, the most overvalued stock market of all time coming out of 2021 into 2022. So you're right, there was a lot of vulnerability there. And I think that's, I think that is the reason that it, the markets performed so poorly last year. As you know, for a balanced portfolio, 2022 was like almost a once in a 150 year event because both stocks did very poorly and bonds did very poorly. Usually you get that counterbalancing effect, which you didn't get that. Fortunately, that is one of the things I talked about in my book at Bubble 3.0, which we, we did digitally digitally publish early 2022, trying to be ahead of the what I thought was going to be the deflation of bubble 3.0. And you know, that turned out to be right for most of 2022. But then all of a sudden it's been like an echo bubble here recently, you know, where you have a lot of the really junky stuff that's leading the rally, which is another reason why I don't trust this rally, whether it's profitless tech or the most shorted stocks, it had a resurgence of memes and and other you know funky things leading the way, and Tesla having just an unbelievable appreciation in a short period of time, or even so even I, even something like <clears throat> Bed Bath and Beyond, right? That exactly. you know, all indications shows they're going out of business, probably by things like Amazon, right? And the stock had an enormous appreciation for a while before that bubble once again popped. So yes, that's another good example. So David, how do we look at? the politicization of the Fed. You know, it seems that they're supposed to be neutral. They're not supposed to be political. But yet, it seems like if the economy actually, you know, really starts getting bad, people start losing jobs at a dramatic pace, that it seems like they're not going to be able to step aside and, and let that happen until they reach that 2% target. How do, you, how do you see that squaring with their actual inflation target? Well, I think you're precisely right. And I hear very few people bring that up I'm, because we were talking earlier about cyclical versus secular or longer term inflation. And I think one of the, you know, the uh, secular drivers of higher inflation is the politicization of the Fed. Now, I don't think they're quite as politicized right now as they were a couple of years ago. But I think if you get into a nasty enough recession, that's going to change. I think he's going to be under tremendous political heat. And I think we'll eventually have to to give into that. Mm-hmm. So, but I mean, that's not the only change. I mean, another change, obviously, this reshoring. I mean, you just think about with semiconductors and with, you know, TC, TCM, uh, TSM, rather, Taiwan Semiconductor, which is building this massive plant in Arizona. And they're pointing out how much higher their costs are going to be than they would be in Taiwan. And that's just one example. There are so many others. And then, you know, I know we talked about this last time, but this idea of greenflation, that the great green energy transition is very expensive. And now we have this new, very ironically named Inflation Reduction Act, which is going to throw you know hundreds of billions of dollars at more green energy things. And some of it makes sense. A lot of it doesn't. And it is, again, a move away from fossil fuels uh, toward a less energy dense mix, which is one of the problems with renewables, along with their intermittency. But I will say, to give that bill a little bit of credit, it's also quite supportive of small modular nuclear reactors, which is one of my favorite areas. And the government has been 
very, uh, maybe not hostile, but certainly apathetic towards that area in the past. And that seems to be changing. Mm-hmm. And I am an investor, you know, just full disclosure, I'm an investor. It's pub- I'm sorry, it's not public, it's a private company. So no insider information. There's no way people can invest in it. I guess you can contact the company, but I'm not recommending that. It's a very speculative situation, but I do think they'll be, I think they'll have an actual uh, plant operating here relatively soon, but being the next year or two. Mm-hmm. And, but there's a whole lot of other companies that are really trying to, you know, get small modular on, you know, in the, plugged into the grid, which has, I think, a, a number of advantages. And somebody's going to pull that off. And now that the government's actually trying to help that process, I think that's encouraging. But there's a, a lot more on the inflationary side of the ledger than there is on the disinflationary side, because it really had an expl- no, I don't use the term explosion, but a proliferation, a nuclear pro- proliferation of the good kind. You know, where there's all of a sudden all these these plants being put in place at, at the, the site, you know, where it's used. That's one of the advantages of these. You don't have to have these long distance transmission lines put in, which are just an enormous political battle. So I, you know, that's a that's a form of hope. But anyway, we've got an aging labor force. So the labor force is really not growing, or it's growing at a very slow pace, and productivity stinks. And you know, part of that is because the government's getting to be a bigger and bigger role in the economy, which is anti-productivity and so, you know, if you're really talking about what you know, what are the major inflation drivers, I think there's a number of them, and they're going the wrong direction currently. Mm-hmm. For the most- I, I'd like to get to the energy side of things, but maybe before we do, I'd like to just touch on the idea that the debt ceiling, which is something that you kind of touched upon earlier, the idea that the situation that the Fed puts themselves in and, and Powell puts himself in by you know, jacking interest rates and then now needing to add, I think, what's the the stat? Something like $30 billion for every 100 basis point move in interest rates in servicing the debt. So when we hear the idea that Congress needs to approve a higher debt ceiling again, how do you see that situation? Is that is that really, again, something I address with Danielle DiMartino Booth the last time I spoke with her, who I know you're close with. Great source, yes. Which is, is it just theater at that point? Well, I mean, there's obviously tremendous amounts of theater in politics. I mean, if you took the theater out, you probably would have very little left over. (laughs) But I do think you're touching on something that's very important. And I find myself falling into this trap of just kind of ignoring this debt ceiling fight. Mm -hmm. The market certainly is. But it could get ugly. So that's an underappreciated risk. But regardless of that, going, you know, kind of the next level, you just look at what's happening in terms of I mean, the federal deficit was just increased projection was just increased by 60% because you're getting a situation where because of the bear market and asset prices last year, a lot of government revenue is tied to appreciating assets you know, through capital gains. So that's gone down drastically. And then if you do get into recession, which they're inevitable, and we'll come back to why I think the recession is going to happen. By the way, I will say what we did get right last time, or at least I did, I I think you were in agreement with me at the time, is the the likelihood of an earnings recession, which looks almost certain to have started last fall. So that's already underway. And eventually, we're going to get a recession. And then what happens to government revenues in that case? They go down even further, and plus support payments go up. And then you've got the, and this is another thing that doesn't really get the attention it deserves, which is that we're in the midst of a double tightening, where the Fed is not only raising interest rates drastically, 
but they're also now shrinking their balance sheet. So they're doing the opposite of QE. You know this well, quantitative tightening is the opposite, but you rarely hear that discussed. And frankly, it's had very little impact so far because even though the Fed's been shrinking their balance sheet, at the same time, the Treasury, you know, they have their checking account, the Treasury General account, the TGA. Mm-hmm. So they've been running that down, which is so that's been basically putting money into the economy that the Fed has been taking out. So it's been kind of neutralized. But now, kind of like with the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and oil, the Treasury's got to start going the other way. So it's going to get painful pretty quickly. And then if you so if you get interest rates, which have already gone up a lot, I mean, there's about five trillion dollars that's at the Fed that they're now going to be paying you know, basically a five percent interest rate on here very quickly. And it's already in the fours. That's a lot of money. I mean, it's talking two to $250 billion, and a year ago was virtually nothing. And then you're going to have to have the, uh, you know, because the Fed has gone from buying a trillion dollars to selling a trillion dollars, that's a $2 trillion delta. You've also got foreign central banks selling treasuries. Uh, Japan has sold off about 20% of their treasury holding. And frankly, what they're doing in many cases is buying gold. I'm sure you've seen this as well, that central bank acquisitions of gold are running at, at a record pace. They're not buying treasuries. I think there's a lot of suspicion by international investors as as to whether treasuries are actually money good, at least in real terms. So if you get interest rates you know, going up in a recession because there's just this onslaught of supply and a drop off in demand, that's going to be a real problem for the Fed. If you, This is one of my two mega risks for the year that I don't think is getting the attention it should, which is what if interest rates do go up in a recession? What if the Fed has to pay, the Treasury has to pay six or seven percent because there's kind of a buyer strike or they've just simply overwhelmed the market with all the supply? Mm-hmm. The other mega risk I have is that I do think that we're in the early stages of the bursting of a global housing bubble. And housing prices are coming down in the United States. And there's a lot of controversy about how much. I know they're coming down to Canada, in your country. I've heard, you know, kind of 15 percentage, depending on which which market. Uh, but the reality is that the housing bubble was bigger in other countries, which would include Canada, than it was in the United States. And that, you know, we, it's amazing how people just don't worry about that, even though you realize all the damage that was created, you know, 13 years ago when that last housing bubble popped. And again, this one's much bigger. But I'm kind of getting off the, the interest rate and the government financing. But I do think a U.S. fiscal funding crisis this year is a, is a distinct risk. Mm-hmm. Well, as we're you know on that subject of the housing bubble, why do you think that is maybe underappreciated how big it is in the world? And on the other side of that, do you have any personal knowledge about how big it is in China as well? Because you know the last guest I had mentioned that the the China housing bubble that as he sees it is is a real major risk as well. No question about that. I think on the positive side, it's been deflating for a while. And the Chinese government does have a lot of ability to kind of contain the fallout from bursting bubbles. I mean, they've done it with equities and, you know, they've had other, you know, downturns in real estate in the past and they managed to prevent. I mean, what really makes it bad and which they've been able to avoid, which we didn't avoid 13 years ago, is when it starts pulling down the financial system. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got, you know, they've got huge amounts of well, including U.S. Treasuries, but enormous domestic savings. They're a, they're, they're a cash-rich society for a variety of reasons. But yeah, I think it's going to continue to be tough. I know my partner, Louis Gov, who I think he've had on, and but you certainly know Louis Gov is a China expert. 
and he is convinced that China's reopening and it's going to be incredibly bullish for the global economy. That's one reason why he's skeptical that we're going to get a recession, including the United States. We have a little bit of a divergence of opinion on that right now, but he certainly does not believe that the Chinese real estate market was, is going to take down their economy or the global economy. I don't know. I mean, they are kind of self-contained, so I, I guess I, I think that's probably true. But I think these other, you know, the Nordic countries, New Zealand, Australia, you know, those countries, uh, the, the housing prices are, if you look at it as a percentage of disposable income, way above the United States. Mm-hmm. And, and they are deflating. And the other thing, too, is, and I can't remember we talked about this last time, but you, you're aware of this, is that U.S. homeowners are lucky because our mortgages are largely fixed right now. And in many of these markets, they're variable rate. Mm-hmm. And so now these interest rate increases are going to be starting to really hit home. And affordability is terrible in the United States. It's going to be even worse in these other markets. And there just doesn't seem to be the anxiety over that that I think there should be. And for most people, the, their home is their biggest asset. And if they perceive that it's depreciating, that's not great for consumer confidence. No. Now, I think the difference is, time, to be fair, is the banking system has been greatly fortified. And I, so I don't think you have that kind of risk that you did back in 07, 08, 09. But there's a, the, the debt is still out there somewhere and the problems are still out there somewhere. More likely, and I'm sure you've heard this in the shadow banking system, you know, the non-banks that have you know, kind of stepped up to do some of the riskier stuff that the U.S. And, and Western banks don't do anymore. That was actually, as you're explaining that, something that I wanted to ask you about is is the idea that it's not necessarily that we have this same situation of way overvalued and overheated housing market the same way that it was in 08. You make the point that that is a, a very different looking system than it was back then. But even if we look at it from a chain reaction type situation of of what a decrease in housing prices means for jobs for the average consumer as you as you made that point if if people feel poor because the value of their biggest asset is coming down what do those downstream consequences look like to you well they spend less and i think that's what you're actually seeing with what these retailers are saying i mean even walmart that kind of positively surprised and, and target they're basically saying that the consumer is not buying the more expensive stuff, they're buying the essentials. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a function of it. And I also think that housing is, there's so many related industries that when housing goes into the tank, it has really quite the ripple effect through the economy. Mm-hmm. So I think there's both, you know, both of those aspects. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think it's I think it's kind of silly to blow off the weakness in housing. And if it stops here, maybe, but I don't think it is. I mean, when you have affordability as bad as it is currently, interest rates rising, how do you, if you want to sell your home, how does the market clear? Something's got to give and that uh, something is going to be priced. So far, it's mostly been volumes. That's a classic pattern. Mm -hmm. First, the volumes go way down, the sales volumes go way down and then prices start to crack Mm -hmm. and we're already seeing it. So I don't think there's any great, uh, you know, I'm not sticking my neck out very far. I'm like what I usually do. But the other thing I'd say is, is it's commercial real estate looks like an utter disaster. And then multifamily, I mean, the, the positive for the U.S. housing market, I think it's probably generally true in most Western markets, is there wasn't this great overbuilding of, of single-family homes as there was back in the you know, 2002 to 2007 period. But where there has been a lot of overbuilding is with commercial real estate and with multifamily. 
So that's, but that's, those are important parts of the market too, the economy. And so, you know, I guess, the, can we talk a little bit about the economy right now since that's been a hot topic? Absolutely. Well, as you know, at the end of last year, there was a lot of anxiety over a recession being near at hand. Mm-hmm. Then markets rally. And I, and I think that's where it, the market sets the narrative so often that when you get these market rallies, be they counter trend or not, people start feeling better. And so then they start coming up with, well, we must be in the process of having a soft landing. And then it became no landing. Mm-hmm. And yet, at the same time, which, again, I think those viewpoints were heavily driven by what the market was doing. But when you start looking at the leading economic data, and for example, literally the LEIs, leading economic indicators, felt, have fallen for 10 straight months to be sounding like Elizabeth Warren. Whenever that's happened in the past, there's been a recession 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. And then I've heard people, including some people I respect in our own firm, say, well, don't worry about this yield curve thing because the yield curve has given some false signals in the past. And it has, not very many times. But when it has, it's been because the yield curve is mildly and briefly inverted. But it's deeply inverted right now. This is like the third deepest inversion we've ever had. That, to me, is a big red flag. And, and part and of it is... And for the amount ahead. of time that it has as well, right? Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. And then you've got the money supply. If you look at the money supply, this is something that Daniel DiMartino, Booth's mentor and hero, Lacey Hunt, is all over. He follows ODL, other deposit liabilities, which is kind of a more real-time money supply measure, and that's collapsing. In real terms, the money supply globally, but also in the United States, is going down at the fastest rate since the 1930s. And people would say, and I, I buy this counterargument to a degree, from a very high level. I mean, the, there was so much money in, in the system in the post-pandemic era, it was basically a 40% surge in the money supply. So, you're, you know, there is still a lot of money in the system. And, you know, I generally see things that, you know, there's kind of a trillion, trillion and a half of excess savings that households, consumers have, but they're also taking on a lot of debt. Credit card balances are zooming. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the current, the current interest rate on those revolving balances, 20%. And there's now a trillion dollars in revolving debt for U.S. Mm-hmm. consumers. That's painful. So that's kind of another transfer of wealth that's going on. I think that's because of that. That's why a lot of these bankers have been kind of, you know, saying, oh, well, actually the consumer is in, in good shape because the consumer has been borrowing a lot on their credit cards, which they like to see. But one of the cheeriest guys has been Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. All of a sudden now he says, I think there's a recession coming in the third quarter. When I saw that just actually this morning, I was like, whoa, that's quite a change. Jamie Dimon, you know, last year was saying economic hurricane coming our way. Now he's if you listen to him, he's like, well, maybe yes, maybe no, this is good, this is bad. It's, but I'm sticking with the, you know, the tried and true, the LEIs, the, the yield curve especially, and the money supply. And so I think that it's just a matter of time before we do go into an actual, not just profits recession. Mm-hmm. Well, the last time you and I spoke, you were kind of forecasting for the second half of 2022 to have a recession. And you know, it, it just made me think of the idea that maybe these indicators that we've previously relied upon that were, you know, so telling of what was coming are maybe broken. We're, we're in this completely new interest rate regime that has broken this downtrend for the last 40 years that we've seen. So are there more of those signals that are possibly broken at this time that makes this such a confusing time? Well, I would agree with that. In fact, even in my one of my newsletters here recently, I borrowed an old quote from Edward R. Murrow, who you know, the famous war correspondent from the, uh, you know, the, the Blitz in London, and then, uh, you know, kind of broke the McCarthy thing in the early 50s. And he once said that 
if you're not confused, you don't really understand the situation. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very apt quip for the environment that we're in right now. There are just enormous cross currents, and you're exactly right. There, are, because of the pandemic response, it created a set of circumstances that we've really never seen before. Mm-hmm. So I think that is is throwing things off. And uh, you know, I think what we're probably likely to see, we might talk about this last time, is we could actually still see relatively robust, well, at least positive nominal GDP growth, but negative real GDP growth. And if we still have five percent inflation and 3% nominal GDP, we've got a minus 2% real, which is probably a little extreme. Mm-hmm. But that's you know, that's a difference too, is that there's just so much money in the system, but it's kind of fake money. So it creates this fake GDP growth. It's not it's not the real deal. And I think that's why people are struggling because they're, yeah, they're getting pay increases, but the inflation is eating those pay increases up and then some. Mm-hmm. Is a big part of it, do you think, maybe the idea that there is such a lag in these, as, as you brought up, the effects of these new policies? Absolutely. And that's one thing that, that's really indisputable is that monetary policy works with lags and they're variable. You know, that's the, that's the tricky part. They're not, it's not like you say, well, in six months, this is going to happen. Maybe six months, it will. Maybe it's 12 months, maybe it's 18 months, but it's going to happen. You can delay it, but you can't avoid it. One of the other indicators that we talked about was the gold to S&P ratio as an indicator of recession. So has that changed? And have you changed your mind on that? Well, I guess I would say that if I used that before, that was probably not the best example. I would probably use the gold to copper ratio as being a better example and, you know, that was looking pretty ugly here a few months ago. And then copper had a massive move. Gold went up some, but not as much. And so that looked better. And now it's starting to weaken again. And uh, I don't know. I, I mean, my gut on both of those is that they're going to go a lot higher long term. But that gets back to more of what I think is a fundamental issue. And that is what is the Fed going to do if we really do go into recession? And I just don't see how they avoid going back into QE. Because if it's a matter of funding the U.S. government or letting the interest rates go up to it, because it really becomes kind of a chasing their tail situation. If they stand down and they let, you know, so we're running these big deficits of the bond market is saying we want, you know, really high interest rate to finance these, that just deepens the recession. Mm -hmm. It makes it even worse. So I think they're going to get forced back, forced back into a QE mode before, well, I'm not saying six months, maybe it's 12, maybe it's eight. It's out there somewhere. And that's when I think you're really going to get the explosive move and gold and copper and a lot of other hard assets. But as long as they're in this kind of mode they're in right now, where you're, you know, they keep tightening and it's, you know, that's not great for gold prices because obviously gold doesn't have a yield. And uh, I know you could argue, but in real terms, interest rates are still negative. And mm-hmm. yeah, but, you know, then you have to try, try to come up with some kind of normalized interest rates as I was referring to earlier. So anyway, um, I don't know if I probably didn't answer your question, ideally on the S&P to gold ratio, but, uh, I guess you would say probably that that signal here recently has become less alarming too. You know, as the S and P has rallied more than gold, but mm-hmm. gold did have a little pop. The gold miners had a really good pop, but as usual, they've given that back and pretty quickly. So when we when we think about the idea that you brought up about about copper versus gold, because copper is such an industrial metal, if and when we do get that recession, doesn't that mean? you know, more negative pressure for copper because of 
you know, dwindling demand because of that recession? Or why would that create a higher copper price? Well, I think what's going to create the higher copper price is when the Fed goes back into QE mode. Mode, but I do think that copper is going to do better in a recession than it would normally, just because of this great green energy transition. As you know, the EVs are so much more copper intensive than ICEs are internal combustion engines. So there's an underlying boost to copper demand that there wasn't in the past during a recession. And then you've also got China reopening, and China's a big consumer of copper. Now, I don't think they're going to be as as, as uh, voracious. Uh, a user of copper as they have been in the past because they're, like you said, they've got kind of the aftermath of this massive real estate bubble to deal with. So I don't think you're going to see a major infrastructure surge again in China or, a, you know, a lot more apartment buildings being built for condos. I think that's going to stay subdued for a long time. So I don't think that's going to be it. But I really do think the green energy thing, there's just not going to be enough copper. There's not going to be enough of most of these items that are essential uh, for the great green energy transition. So is there any possibility, David, that we don't get a recession? Always a possibility. I think it's extremely unlikely. You know, we can debate till the cows come home as to when that is likely to occur. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, it's pretty unavoidable. And again, you got to, if you ignore the yield curve, I think you... I mean, I've heard that so many times throughout my career, which is now 44 years. You know, it's different this time with the yield curve. And it's, it used to be because it's it's inverting at a too low a rate, and we don't really hear that anymore. But uh, I think you hit the nail on the head that when you look at how deeply and how long it's deeply inverted, how long it's been inverted, that's pretty powerful. And part of the reason is that if you think about it, the banking industry is pretty critical to the to the vitality of the economy. And banks don't do well when they have to pay a higher rate for short-term money and to get a lower rate on longer-term money. Because that's basically what they do, right? They borrow short, they lend long. Now, they've been able to kind of get away with it because there's been this inertia on the part of depositors where they've left enormous amounts of money at basically zero interest rates where all they had to do was, you know, move it into a T-bill. And, but now that's changing. People are waking. We've even seen that with our clients are, you know, calling out a blue saying, oh, you know, I've got 50 grand in the, the bank at zero. And I think maybe I should. Yeah, you should. I mean, you could just even move it into a money fund. It's, as you know, the gap between what they pay on these sweep accounts. This is one of the dirty little secrets of the bank and brokerage industry is that they pay, you know, these sweep accounts pay out a quarter, half a percent, something like that, but they're easy. And for a firm like us, it puts a lot of pressure on us to have to manually put that money into a, a higher yielding money market account. But the yield pickup is so huge, we have to do it. So my point is the banks are going to lose that kind of dumb money source of income that they've been getting. And they're also taking big hits on their securities portfolio. And now we're starting to see delinquencies and you know loan losses uh, escalate. I think we're getting plenty of examples of how we are in a very late stage uh, upcycle. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I want to get back to this idea that we touched on earlier about how the energy could affect the inflation picture. It seems that at every turn, governments are almost trying to make energy more expensive by making grids more unreliable and relying on less diverse sources of energy rather than make it easier to access. So how do you see that going forward? And where do we hit that point of sobriety? Well, like I said, I think it is encouraging that we are seeing support for nuclear power for the first time. And it's coming from a, 
Democratic administration. <clears throat> and I think also if you look at Canada, I'm sorry, not Canada, but California, where Governor Newsom kept Diablo Canyon open, and he took a tremendous amount of blowback from the ultra-progressive part of his party to do that. But I just think reality is setting in. I mean, just think that, you know, just look what happened in Europe. And Europe was extremely green-focused, I think, to their great detriment. And, you know, one of the really sad things about all of this and the over-reliance on Russian energy is that as they've lost that source, then they've gone back to coal. And in case of Germany, the dirtiest form of coal, lignite, they're also burning uh, massive amounts of U.S. wood. They import wood pellets and they consider that to be, it's renewable, but they somehow consider that to be green, whereas it's actually dirtier than coal. So, I mean, it's coal usage is setting records globally. That's unfortunate. I mean, that's the really bad stuff. And, you know, here we've got in the United States where we can't even finish this Mountain Valley Pipeline a mansion, you know, from West Virginia's Jitjo Mansion is working hard to try to get, it's 95% built. And it could bring in low-cost natural gas to the northeast part of the United States that pays like double what we pay out west for power. And instead, they're importing LNG you know, to, you know, like Boston, where in New York, which is an extremely expensive gas. And, and you know, right now you've got gas uh, selling for, I don't know, 250, 260, 270, and all that gas sitting that's kind of stranded in uh, you know, western Pennsylvania, eastern Ohio, the Marcellus Shale which has become enormously prolific. And so yeah, a lot of this is just totally nonsensical, but it's, it's become this, you know, religious belief that you just have to eliminate fossil fuels and, and eliminate them very quickly. And it's, it just isn't working. And I, I think there is a growing awareness that you have to have a, you know, a more uh, kind of mutual coexistence attitude between fossil fuels and renewables. Renewables, renewables definitely have a place, but they're, they don't really work well for baseload power. And you basically have to have natural gas backup units for when they go down. So that's not great. That's why I do think there is this shift away because the, the most efficient form of energy is nuclear power. And that's actually, you know, maybe a, well, if we get to specific investment ideas to talk about that. Because I, I think most of your listeners are, if they have any uranium exposure, it's almost nil. Mm -hmm. And there are ways to play that. Well, yeah, I, I'd love to jump into that because, you know, a, a certain section of our of our audience does love uranium i try to touch on it as much as we can here and you know when you when you try to be dispassionate and analyze the idea of any form of energy generation regardless of your biases towards it it does really seem like nuclear is one of those best options granted there are some some major obstacles to get it to market to be able to build plants but i think that is getting better all the time so how do you see those best ways to really be exposed to to that market well first of all i think the era of the light water reactor at least in the united states and throughout most of the west is over i don't see that coming back anytime soon for a variety of reasons mostly the cost and, and but you could actually point the finger back to the government particularly the nrc Nuclear Regulatory Commission. I think there should be an A in front of it for Anti-Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Uh, you know, I don't think since they've been established, there's been a new plant completed. Now, there's a couple in Georgia that are supposed to finally come online, but that's probably going to be it for a while in the West. That's why I think it's critical to get these small modular nuclear reactors, which can be constructed you know, almost on a cookie cutter type of format and a production assembly line. And But they're you know much, much smaller, but you can create a whole lot more of them. 
And the one that I was talking about, molten, it uses a molten salt technology that's been around since the early 60s. And the, the radioactive waste is almost nil. They can recycle it. There's a whole bunch of advantages. And, but it's, it's got to happen. I mean, there's just no way we can power a planet with 8 billion people uh, and many of them in the developing world who are aspirational of a better life, which means more energy usage without it. Yeah, otherwise, we're going to just have to continue to rely on coal and all the effluents that uh, burning coal is, you know, represents. So, yeah, but to get back to uranium, I mean, normally our, our, our favorite play in the, in the past has been Cameco, you know, from your country, the, the leading uranium producer in the West, but it's pretty pricey right now. I think what's kind of a stealthy way to do it is with the Sprott uranium ETF, mm-hmm. the S-R-U-U-F is S-R, so Sam, Robert, Ulysses, Ulysses, Frank, is the ticker symbol in the U.S. I don't know what it is. I can't, but I mean, you can easily find it. But it's, you know, it's, it's come down from 17 or so about a year ago. It's about a, 11 and, and a three quarters right now. And if you look at where it typically trades relative to physical uranium, it's about 10% under value, which I know is not a ton, but it's a decent amount because uranium itself is probably way too cheap. Mm-hmm. I've seen repeatedly. Have you ever had Rick Rule on? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, he's just a genius when it comes to uranium. And he thinks it's, you know, that $80 is kind of a minimum price to really incentivize new supply because you're kind of running out of the old warheads. And it's something like 45% of uranium production comes out of Kazakhstan. Mm-hmm. And there's all kinds of, you know, threats to that. So I just think that uranium and nuclear is going to do very well, but I think uranium is a, you know, that's a great way for a retail investor to play. It's easy to buy, to buy that. And they're actually kind of supporting the price and whatever it dips. You should probably where they will sell shares and then go in there and buy uranium. Mm-hmm. So it, I think it's a pretty low downside way to uh, to play the resurgence in nuclear power, which clearly happened. I mean, there's dozens of new, new nuclear plants being built, particularly in Asia. Yeah, it's interesting that you brought up the NRC. I recently spoke with Doomberg a couple of weeks back, and we talked about the the Diablo Canyon situation that Governor Newsom really tried and pushed to get funding and extend the life and the license for that plan to operate, yet the NRC has blocked it on the other end of that. So, you know, that that kind of goes back to something that we were talking about in regards to the Fed about being politicized. It really seems like we need to remove some of these obstacles that are in the way of being able to provide reliable power. It's not even necessarily about being the cheapest and you know most expedient power. Obviously, we want standards for any energy source to be safe and effective. But you know, that that's kind of why I asked earlier about this, this moment of sobriety when we realize that we need to dispassionately be able to look at these energy sources. Absolutely. And there's just been so much misinformation about nuclear power. There's been so much hysteria. And, and I personally believe that, you know, it's, it's in China's best interest and Russia's best interest if we don't have a vibrant nu- domestic nuclear industry. So I think they foment a lot of this anti-nuclear, uh, you know, propaganda, I would argue. But and that's not to say there aren't risks and you need to. But I mean, we have Yucca, which is was this incredibly expensive disposal plant out underneath the mountains in southern Nevada that's just sitting empty and it's been sitting empty for decades. And I actually had a chance to talk privately with Joe Manchin back in May of last year, and he was like, "It's nuts. 
we have to be able to use that. And mm -hmm. so it's, uh, you know, new, if you look at France, for example, which gets something like 60 to 70% of its electricity from nuclear power, and they were moving away from nuclear power. Then, of course, when all this happened, all of a sudden, it's a game changer. Mm -hmm. Last I saw, they're planning to actually expand their nuclear fleet somewhat. But, you know, the UK has had a tough time. It, it's so tough to build these big light water reactors. And that's why I think it's, you know, go small. Instead of go big or go home, go small or go home. Go go small and modular where you can you can repeat it over and over. And you don't have to design these custom plants that exactly. are that are suited for every every particular geography where you're really spending, you know, millions and millions or even billions of dollars on the engineering alone of these massive, massive plants that take, you know, decades to build and finally right. license and everything. Right. You're right. So and, you know, again, the transmission, I think there's not quite the awareness of the difficulty of building transmission lines in particularly the United States, but I think throughout the West, mm -hmm. And that's the problem when you build these things because they're typically a long way away from population centers, right? I mean, I think if you put them in where coal plants used to be and there's already transmission lines, that makes mm -hmm. some sense. But they don't seem to do it that way. Whereas with these small modulars, if you can locate them in a, you know, like they can supply power to a small town. And with enough of them, you can supply power to a big town. And military bases, that's which is this firm I was referring to earlier, they're really going to the military because one of the other problems that you're, I'm sure you're aware of is if there was an EMP, either because of one of our enemies detonating a nuclear warhead at the proper altitude over North America, or even a natural uh, EMP, electromagnetic pulse mm -hmm. of sufficient intensity, like a huge solar flare. And I think that happened up in in, uh, in your country in Quebec, Quebec back in 1988, where there was a really serious solar flare and it knocked out the grid. And I believe they've gone in and now they've reinforced the grid, which is really not that expensive to do, to protect it. So you it doesn't just go down in the case of one of these. Because imagine if we, we lost the internet, if we lost electrical power for an extended time period in North America, we'd be make COVID look like a walk in the park. Mm -hmm. So if, if you have these SMRs at the specific location and they are, you know, uh, EMP protected, you've got really reliable power and you don't have to deal with the, the fragile grid. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, one of the other ideas that, when you were mentioning that earlier, that came to mind was the loss of power, the efficiency of transmitting power over long distances is big too. Very, very good point. Now, there was a lot of talk, of, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago about superconductors and how those grid transmission lines could be improved to eliminate a lot of that loss, but that hasn't happened. So that's another really good point. Mm -hmm. So David, on the other side of that, I think obviously... A lot of our listeners understand that oil and gas is going to be with us for longer than the environmental agendists really want it to be. Do you see that as a as another opportunity for folks to be investing because of this really this the the idea that we're not going to be able to really step away from this at the flick of a light switch? Yes, I think there's great opportunities in that. And it's it's actually kind of self-reinforcing because there has been such hostility towards fossil fuels for years now. There's been underinvestment. And this is actually true across pretty much all commodities, but it's been acutely true with fossil fuels. So you and demand keeps rising. And there's only so much you can draw down the SPR, the, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. At some point, it's got to be refilled. 
Mm-hmm. So you're going to have that swing from a seller to a buyer. Uh, so I think the setup is very good. I, I think the, the the disadvantage is that a lot of these energy stocks have gone up quite a bit, though they've corrected lately. So it's it's created kind of a secondary opportunity. And natural gas, as we talked about earlier, has really come down hard. So some of the there's Turmalin up in your neck of the woods that makes a very interesting name, and Katera um, down in the in the states is a CTRA is a primary natural gas producer. But some of the European energy companies, which tend to trade at half the valuation or you know two thirds anyway of say an Exxon or Chevron, I'm talking about you know world class companies like Shell and BP, and Shell has this phenomenal. They probably have the best LNG business on the planet. And you know trades at about a fifteen percent free cash flow yield and single digit PE and Apache, which I don't remember when I was on with you last. Apache had been just brutalized; it had fallen from fifty down to the low thirties. And I said I thought Apache was a really good buy down there. It did go to fifty again, although it's pulled back now to uh, around forty. And I think that's once again a very good buy. And so yeah, I think there's really money to be made there for people that aren't willing or that are willing to say, well, I'm. I think these things are good for humanity. I don't think they're evil. I don't think they're uninvestable. Mm-hmm. But I, unfortunately, a lot of people still believe that. Though for contrarians, it's not unfortunate. It's fortunate. That's mm-hmm. why they're so cheap. But it also means we're going to be in this situation where there's just not enough supply. I think we're in kind of a lull period right now, uh, largely due to the SPR, but also due to the repetitive lockdowns in China last year. Chinese oil demand was down about a million and a half barrels. Uh, last year, which is big. I mean, that's about what the, that, that, during the Great Recession, the global demand for oil fell by about a million and a half barrels. So that happened just from China alone. Mm-hmm. But it's reopening. And India continues to use more and more. It looks like they're going to be up about 600,000 barrels a day year over year. So yeah, I think oil prices are not going to stay in. They got hammered today because of economic concerns, but that's a temporary thing in my view. Mm-hmm. So David, on the metals front as well, do you think that we need the Fed to at least pause and or pivot for gold to really start moving again? Or how do you see that time when gold becomes an asset that people are looking at again? I think a pause would help, but I don't think that's going to be the big trigger for the kind of explosive move that a lot of people are looking for. Uh, you know, I think that is going to take a return to QE, which I think is inevitable. Mm-hmm. But I think that's when it, you could just shock you how much gold goes up. But I think we're still in this period where it's going to have some sharp rallies and the miners are going to take off and, and that you better take some profits because they're likely to come down again. And that's how we played it. We Instead of saying, well, we're not going to ever sell them because we think we're in this secular uptrend for gold and gold miners, but mm-hmm. there's just going to, there's going to be a lot of volatility. And so I, I would just say that, you know, for your, your, your folks that are listening, that when you get a move like we did early last year or uh, late uh, well, sorry, early last year, late last year, and even into this year, where we had two big rallies in the miners, take some profits. Mm-hmm. You know, the market's going to inhale, it's going to exhale, it's going to inhale, exhale. It's not going to be just a you know straight up or straight down. Take advantage of the volatility. Most people do it wrong. Most people, they you know, when it goes up, they just keep buying, and then when it goes down, they panic, and you know, it's what we call wrong wrong cycle investing, where they use the cycles improperly. Excellent, David. Well, is there any any other topics that you'd like to touch on before we wrap up here today? I don't think so. I think he asked a whole lot of really good questions. I mean, there's a. I guess I always like to throw out a yield idea. I guess I might throw out a couple of yield ideas because I, most of my peers don't really cover yield. Mm-hmm. It's always about stocks, but I think there's a quite an opportunity with uh, 
bath and body works bonds. So the ticker symbol for the common is BBWI, but I'm specifically recommending the bonds, which are 695 coupons due in 2033, yielding like 8.7%. And it's a, it's a solid company that hardly ever loses money. They even made good money through COVID. I think a lot of people confuse it with, you mentioned Bed Bath & Beyond, and it mm-hmm. sounds like that company, but it's not that company. So it's, uh, in fact, a benefit because they are a competitor. So as Bed Bath & Beyond is, I think they've already announced they're shutting 200 stores. And so they're going to have a little bit less competition. Uh, and actually, you've got Dan Loeb in there now. He's bought about 6% of the company and he's now got a seat on the board and he's stopping his proxy fight. There is a risk with these things. You get a leverage buyout because that obviously will trash the balance sheet if that happens. But it's a double B type of credit. So unlikely that would happen. Mm-hmm. And that's an area we like to be in, kind of that high grade junk because those bonds so rarely default. And as I say, these guys are consistently profitable. They're paying down debt, generating a lot of free cash flow. A more aggressive income name would be uh, Equitrans Midstream, ETRN, which is actually a play on the, the, the Mountain Valley pipeline that we were talking about earlier, that natural gas pipeline that's runs through uh, West Virginia and, and Virginia that's uh, 95% complete. And these guys have been just pounded because this thing keeps getting delayed. If that ever got approved, that would be a rocket ship. of it. It's the riskier name. I would say if anybody buys it, they should buy a relatively small position, mm-hmm. uh, but it yields about 10%. It's down from 10 to six. And just recently down even further longer term. So anyway, those are a couple of income ideas for your folks. Wonderful, David. Well, I really appreciate your time and your thoughts today. Of course, your book, Bubble 3.0, is probably available everywhere uh, like Amazon, right? I wish. I wish. I would just say that if anybody, they've got our email, I think you're going to run that so that they can contact us for our, our Substack website. And they can just uh, contact us there and say they want a copy. And we'll send them a copy. Uh, for free. So, uh, but yes, that's a, I actually was on a call today about trying to get with the problem, Tom, was we wanted to get it out quickly because we really thought bubble 3.0 was going to start popping, which indeed it did. So we did it digitally and then, you know, been pursuing a publisher, which that's really a challenge. I think we're on the right track right now, but in the meantime, you know, we can deliver it. But the other thing too is our making hay Monday is free it comes out every Monday. It's got specific recommendations, which, again, a lot of our competitors don't do. And I think one of the advantages is that since I've for decades been a money manager, not just a, you know writing about stuff, I mean, we actually run about $4 billion of client assets, you know, almost all discretionary. So I think that gives us a bit of an advantage when it comes to you know opining on things that we think are attractive or unattractive. And I actually do give short ideas in there, too, for people that are looking to buy puts or actually go outright short. Mm-hmm. to hedge their long positions. So anyway, it's a, it's free. I think people might like it. You can get that at our Substack Haymaker website very easily. Yeah, that's haymaker.substack.com. And of course, your Twitter at haymaker underscore zero, right? Correct. Wonderful, David. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Tom. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.